Our scripture this morning is from Mark 15, verses 1 to 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. You want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna start over here. This is a picture of George Bolt, Bolt Rohan Bolt, and Gary Johnson. This is shortly after they were released uh, from the Greenhaven Correctional Facility in Stormville, New York, on March 5th. The three men had spent 24 years in prison after being found guilty from the for the 1996 murders of a shop owner and an off-duty police officer in Queens, New York. Uh, the murders then triggered a massive uh, intense uh, manhunt for the, 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 the murderers uh, led by the, the mayor at the time, Rudy Giuliani, and they wanted to solve this case. So a week ago last Friday, a judge in Queens threw out the three convictions of all three of these men. She, at the time, admonished the prosecutors for withholding evidence uh, that would have cast serious doubt on the guilt of these men. Prosecutors in the case had not turned over police reports showing that investigators of the murders had linked the murders to other men, members of a local robbery ring. Uh, prosecutors had also withheld five witness accounts that contradicted the men's confessions after the murders, which the lawyers said were coerced. When Rohan Bolt, now 59 years old, stepped out of the correctional facility a week ago last Friday, he clutched two of his young grandchildren's hands for the first time and shouted, we finally made it. Let's assume, as at least it sounds pretty likely, that these men were in fact innocent of these murders that they were wrongly convicted of. 
Just imagine with me for a second spending 24 years in prison for something you didn't do, for something that you were wrongly accused of. Uh, As in the case of one of these men, Rohan Bolt, you're a restaurant owner, you're married, you have four young children, just like that. A series of what looks to be false accusations come at you. They, that leads to the robbing you of 24 years of the prime of your life. As you sit in the prison outside, your, your children, your four young children grow up. And then they go on to have children, and those children begin to grow. Think of all the guilty parties that had to come together to lead to this miscarriage of justice. We've got the prosecutors withholding evidence. We've got police using coercive tactics like beating and uh, other things, forced confessions, trying to coerce them. We've got a mayor who's under putting on pressure to solve this murder quickly. And then, of course, we've got the people who actually committed the murder. Miscarriages of justice are unfortunately not a new thing, particularly for black men in our country. And at the dawn of the most, one of the most important days for us as Christians, this most important weekend we call Good Friday, begins a tale of injustice. I invite you to open up your Bibles to, to Mark 15. Last week with, with Joe preaching, we saw a couple things. One, we saw Peter's very public denial of Jesus. And that means at this point, Jesus' disciples have exited stage left from our drama. They're gone. They have abandoned Jesus. There will be, at least in Mark's gospel, there will be no more appearances, even after the resurrection of the disciples. Jesus is is utterly abandoned at this point. Secondly, Joe showed us also this trial that took place in the Sanhedrin. Uh, The Sanhedrin is the supreme Jewish religious, political, and legal council at the time that meets in Jerusalem. And they find uh, Jesus guilty of blasphemy, of claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, of, of making these claims that only belong to God. And under Jewish law, blasphemy carries the penalty of death. And according to the law, the Mosaic law at least, the, the way you would administer that is by stoning. That's not what happens to Jesus, is it? Instead, we see at the beginning of this passage, Jesus is bound up and brought to Pilate, who is the Roman governor at the time. So let's think about this for a minute. Why not just stone Jesus? I mean, you know, think about that actually is exactly what happens to Stephen in the book of Acts at a later on. Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin on charges of blasphemy. He, He does this very long speech, and then he is dragged outside the city and stoned. So, you know, my question is, why go through all the hassle and the work of bringing Jesus to another trial and not just stone him there? Especially because Pilate, Pilate may not go along with what the chief priests want to do. Let's think about it. Well, one, Jesus has a following. We didn't look at this story, but we, I think most of us are probably familiar with the story of Palm Sunday. We know Jesus has uh, some people, probably they were probably more from Galilee, who see him as, as the Messiah. And so by, by the chief priest and Sanhedrin delivering Jesus to Pilate, if, if uh, after Jesus' death there's an outcry by people, now they've got the Roman governor who, will, who can squash that. In fact, that's actually why Pilate is in Jerusalem in the first place. Pilate normally is not in, Jer- in Jerusalem. Pilate's normally up in Caesarea over on the coast. But 
But remember, this is all happening uh, to the backdrop of Passover. And so during Passover, the Roman governor, in this case Pilate, would come down, I guess, climb up to Jerusalem. And, they, and the Pilate wanted to be there because if anything, if any riots broke out, he would be there to squash them. So kind of keep that in mind as we're watching this trial. But secondly, Jewish people don't, don't crucify Crucifixion is the instrument of execution of the Romans, and it was normally reserved for rebels, for insurrectionists, uh, for those who, who posed a, a political threat to Rome. The, Rome was a sim- the cross was a symbol of Roman power. The cross communicated something to Jewish people. It communicated basically, don't mess with us. We're in charge, and if you get in our way, this is what's going to happen and crucifixion wasn't unique to Jesus. We, when Jesus was a boy, there would have been thousands of Jewish people that would have been uh, crucified. Later on, we know when the Jewish war breaks out, years later, there's going to be many, many more Jews who are crucified. Crucifixion is a horrible way to die. I think most of us recognize that. It's also a shameful way to die. I think that's maybe a little bit harder for us to get our minds around. We, we you know, we have crosses on our jewelry. We have, I have a cross here behind me. Uh, I don't think, at least me, when I look at that cross, I don't recoil at it uh, because it's such a shameful uh, symbol. But for the Jewish people, this really is, this is just so shameful. This is so shameful. And so if the Sanhedrin can get a verdict and have Jesus crucified, this is going to severely damage Jesus' reputation. It's going to make it hard for Jesus' disciples and other followers to rehabilitate his image after such a shameful death. But again, but the only person that has the power to crucify Jesus is Pilate. Okay? And Pilate could care less about some guy from Galilee, from Nazareth, claiming to be the Messiah. he, 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 He could care less about that. that. That doesn't pose a threat to Pilate. So, so what the chief priests have to do is they have to translate Messiah, this term that means something to them, to something that means something to Pilate. And that term is king of the Jews. And this is actually, interestingly, this is the first time we've seen this title in the Gospel of Mark. And we know that, you know, Pilate asked this question. We know that the chief priests are, are feeding him this information. See, if Jesus is claiming to be king, the king of the Jews, now Pilate, Pilate would recognize this as treason. So, and the punishment, as we talked about, for treason and insurrection is this crucifixion. So out throughout the trial, we have the chief priests that are feeding these accusations to Pilate to get this conviction. But then like, there's a certain point later on where it looks like the trial is kind of getting side uh, derailed, actually, from what the chief priests want, that Pilate might actually release Jesus. And so then they start stirring up the crowds. And see, Pilate, man, Pilate's, Pilate's pretty shrewd. Remember, Pilate's a politician, and Pilate would not have gotten to this level of power uh, had he not been pretty shrewd, had he not known how to to look out for his his own interests and also be able to just kind of recognize what's happening. And Pilate can see that the chief priests have an agenda here. That that the NIV says uh, that that Pilate recognizes the chief priests or doing this out of self-interest, but the word really is envy. I think that's a better translation. The chief priests are envious of Jesus. And remember, 
Pilate, he's kind of, he's more dispassionate here. He's, he's, he's an outsider to this religious conflict, and he can see pretty, hap, pretty clearly what's happening. These guys are envious of Jesus. Think about envy. Envy is a powerful motivator. A while back, if you were with us, we did a series on the seven deadly sins, and I mentioned that, that, that what's unique about envy is that it's the one sin that never feels good. Like, not even for a second does envy feel good. It's the self-punishing sin. It's, uh, if it's depicted with the color green, which makes sense because envy, it, it's this kind of sickness, it's this kind of cancer that can eat you up from the inside. And one of the reasons why envy makes us sick is because it exposes something vulnerable in us. So we, most of us, we all care about something deeply in our lives. We probably are proud of something uh, in our life. We, we tend to build our identity and our self-worth around that thing. And so what happens when somebody comes along and is clearly uh, superior to us in that, in that thing that we built our identity around, we get envious. And Jesus, it doesn't look like Jesus is really posing a threat of violently overthrowing the Roman Empire. But he, he is, the threat is he's, he's making these chief priests look pretty bad. And they will do nothing to squash this. In, in this courtroom, in this scene that's playing out, uh, the chief priests are guilty of envy. Pilate's not guilty of envy. Pilate doesn't see what the big deal about Jesus is. The, at least in Mark's gospel, this is, this is another day at the office for Pilate. So he wakes up early, but that's just because that's when they did these trials. What they, the governor would want to get the trial over with in the morning so they can, they can get on with their day. He you know, has 11 o'clock tea time or whatever. So, so we, we look back at this day, and rightfully so, we see as Christians, the, this is like the fulcrum point of history. This is the... These next couple days are the climactic moment of the story of the Bible, of the story of Jesus, of the story of the world, when God rescues his creation from the powers of sin and evil and death. That's how we see it. For Pilate, it's the first appointment of the day. And it's probably one he's not really looking forward to because if you, if you know some background of Pilate's relationship with the Jews, the, Pilate's were, the Jews were a real pain in the butt for Pilate. Like, he, he saw them as like this pesky troublesome group. Uh, there's, this, uh, there's this book called The Procurator of Judea. And in it, the writer, this is just a fiction story, he, he, he tells this tale about these two Roman friends, Lamia and Pontius Pilate. And these two guys, are at the, they're at the end of their life, and they're, they're recalling their memories of Galilee. And, and Pilate can remember everything. He can remember his disgust for the Jews. He can remember... Uh, the military crackdowns he ordered. Pilate can remember everything except when he's asked to recall the trial of one Jesus of Nazareth. And Pilate can't seem to remember it. See, the thing about evil, one thing about evil, is evil comes from moral indifference. Some of you uh, are in a Sunday school class right now in which you're looking at the, the actions of the village of Le Chambon during World War II, in southern France. If you're not in the class, this is an area of France uh, where the villagers uh, contributed to the rescue of as many 5,000 refugees during World War II, 3,500 of them being Jews. It's really, it's an extraordinary story. I think the people in the class would attest to that. And a big part of what makes it is extraordinary is that 
that people are doing these things and that so many people in France and Europe were not doing. They were helping the Jewish refugees. They were standing up to the Nazis. And it's easy to think, look back with us and think, like, why didn't people have their eyes wide open to the evil that was happening in Europe and in France? But see, it wasn't, most people weren't actively looking to persecute Jews in Europe. They were just, they were just indifferent. See, see, retrospectively, what we recognize as clearly evil at the time gets to quite banal, quite ordinary, quite like another day at the office, in the case of Pilate. See, Pilate recognizes the injustice of what is happening in front of him, that, that an innocent man is about to be crucified. And he also recognizes that this situation has the potential to be a real pain in the butt for him. See, see Pilate recognizes that if he releases Jesus, there's a good chance he's going to get a riot. He's going to get the one thing he's trying to avoid. And that's, that's what he doesn't want. And so Pilate caves to the pressure to satisfy the crowd and hands over Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I, when I think back on my life, or maybe when I'm older and I think back in my life, I'm not so much worried about thinking back and, man, I, I perpetuated acts of evil at that time, and, man, I regret that. What I'm worried about, and what I think we should be worried about, is looking back and just kind of thinking, you know, we saw a lot of things that looked ordinary, but now, looking back, we can tell they were evil. Or, or we recognize times in our life where I was pretty, I could have said something. But man, that was going to be a real inconvenience. But, but you know what? I didn't do it. I didn't, I just, out of convenience, I didn't say anything. Pilate, Pilate's guilty too. Pilate's guilty of moral indifference. Pilate's guilty of caving to the pressures around him. What about this Barabbas guy? Who is this guy? I, I think it's really interesting. Barabbas' name means, uh, it means son of Abba, means son of father. And Matthew in his gospel, I'd forgotten this. I, didn't, I don't think I knew this, but Matthew actually says his first name was, was Jesus, so Jesus Barabbas. And some people even speculate that maybe, maybe Pilate gets confused between the two Jesuses. I, it doesn't seem like there's a huge amount of backing to that. But, but I don't know about you, but like when I think about Barabbas, I think about this just like common criminal. And I think, man, this is such a tragedy because this, this kind of thug Barabbas, he goes free, but then Jesus, he goes, he goes to the cross. But think with me, if, who is this Barabbas guy? What's he in prison for? In verse 7, we read that Barabbas is in prison because he joined the insurrectionists who committed murder in an uprising. Barabbas was not a common criminal. Barabbas very likely had a following, and a, he was quite popular. So think about, why would Barabbas have been popular? Because Barabbas was enacting what so many other people wanted to do. He had taken the fight to Rome. Barabbas, I'm sure, was sick and tired of having the boot of the Roman Empire on his neck, of being oppressed. And Barabbas made the decision that, I've had enough. I'm taking this fight to the Romans. I'm taking up the sword, and I'm standing up to the superpower Rome. See, Barabbas had shown himself willing to die for his people and his nation. That's not a common criminal. That's what we call a patriot today. Barabbas is guilty of insurrection, right? We know that. 
And this makes more sense. Why does the crowd go for Barabbas? Have you thought about that? Like Jesus and Barabbas. Why Barabbas? Pilate, I'm sure, wants Barabbas to go, go to the cross because Barabbas is probably, sees like, he probably sees him as much more of a threat than Jesus. It's been a while, but, but, but um, think back in Mark to when we were north of Galilee in these rural hills and Jesus does, he feeds the 5,000. I told you, you know, this, on one hand, this looks like a picnic, and John helps us out here, but on the other hand, it looks like these men, these 5,000 men are going out to this, this area that's a hotbed for zealots, and, and they want Jesus to arm them and to then begin the insurrection against Rome, okay? They want Jesus to take the fight to Rome. What does Jesus do? He, they, want him to, they want him to distribute swords. Instead, Jesus distributes bread, right? Last, the night before, Peter's in the garden. Again, we don't get the story of Mark, but Peter takes the sword, he strikes. Jesus tells him to put away the sword. This is, the mo- this is another moment where, where Jesus can, can take the sword and begin the insurrection. At every point in Mark's gospel and the other gospel, every point Jesus is given the option of bringing his kingdom by means of the sword, he refuses. Barabbas is a patriot. Jesus looks pretty passive. You see why Barabbas is the natural choice, if you've got a choice here? Can you put up that quote, Ron? Here's a quote from David Garland. I'll just read it. That's all right. I'll read it. Here's David Garland. If the vote came today, then Barabbas would likely likely win again. again. Hands Hands down. We are more we comfortable, are more comfortable with, the violent, with the violent machismo of the night errant, errant than we than are, we are the, passive the passive suffering, suffering of a seemingly, of a seemingly powerless, powerless savior who submits to beatings and mockery. When I first read this quote, I was like, I, I, was don't, like, I don't know. We would, we would, I would vote, I would for, vote Jesus. for Jesus. We would vote for Jesus, right? In Mahoning and Columbiana County. And the more I thought about it, like, let's, let's just imagine that for a minute. Mahoning County and Columbiana County or Ohio or the whole country is under oppressive regime, regime right? You have lost your freedoms. You are paying a lot of taxes to someone you despise. And you've got two choices here. You can either choose the person who has said, I will take the fight to them. Or you can, take the, you can choose the person who has refused to take the fight, who has refused to pick up the sword, who instead invites you to suffer alongside of him. Like, who wins that vote today in Mahoning and Columbia County? Barabbas wins that vote every time. What are the crowds guilty of? They know both these men. They know the tactics of both these men. One has advocated the way of nonviolence, and one has advocated the way of violence, and the crowds pin their hopes on the way of Barabbas. The crowds are guilty of misplaced hopes. And amidst all this, Jesus stands. He's only got one line in this passage. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds with this super cryptic, enigmatic response, uh, you have said so. But literally in Greek, it's, it's you say. Suleges. What exactly, what does that mean, you say? Is Jesus saying, yes, you said it, I am the king of the Jews? Or is Jesus saying, you say it, I don't. 
it seems like Jesus is neither affirming Pilate nor is he denying Pilate's question. Jesus doesn't affirm that he's uh, the kind of king that Pilate has in mind. See, Pilate has in mind a nationalistic political monarch. So Jesus is not going to affirm that. But Jesus is not going to deny that he is a king, that he is the anointed one of God. Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews, and he's about to enter into his true kingship, but he's going to enter into a kingship that Pilate could never get his mind around, that we, I think, struggle to get our minds around. Jesus will, in fact, be enthroned as a king, but he will be enthroned on a cross. I don't think Pilate's going to get that. I don't know about, kings are not typically enthroned on crosses. And so Jesus neither affirms nor he denies Pilate's question. And the accusations just keep coming at Jesus. Pilate's like, aren't you going to answer? Like, these guys are saying some pretty serious things. Aren't you going to say something? Jesus is silent. NIV translates it, but Jesus still made no reply. But, but literally what it means is Jesus no longer answered anything. In other words, Jesus is done talking. Jesus has said all there is to say. Like, not only is Jesus done talking at the trial, but in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is done talking to people. The only other, only other words in the rest of the gospel you're going to see from Jesus' mouth are uh, spoken to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's going to say that on the cross. In the face, he's been abandoned, and now in the face of accusations, in the face of hatred, in the face of abuse, in the face of cruelty, Jesus is silent. Pilate is amazed. He's amazed. This, is, this word amazed is... It has a connotation of admire. Pilate is genuinely amazed and admires what he's seeing in front of him. When we think about, we, we think that Mark wrote this gospel for Christians in Rome who are very likely experiencing persecution. And when the Christians in Rome would have got to this part of the gospel, they would have totally recognized it. They, they would have recognized a miscarriage of justice at the hands of the Roman Empire. In fact, some of them, maybe many of them, had actually stood trial like this. They, they knew literally what it meant to stand trial and to be unjustly accused of something. And Mark includes this story because he, he wants, I think he wants to give a model. How do you, in your own situation, endure suffering with this, like this, like with peace and grace? trusting that God is going to deliver you. And, and the, suffering of, the suffering of Jesus has not just brought consolation or guidance to uh, first century Christians. It's done it throughout the centuries. Many, many stories. One, one of a person in, who was enduring suffering in South America, torture seller, and he, he, he reported that the intricacies of Christianity, do, Christian doctrine, in that torture just disappeared. What sustained him at that horrible time was knowing that Jesus had also been on the wrong side of a whip. And Jesus was with him there. You and I, we, don't, we can't relate to that kind of persecution. We can't relate to the injustice of being locked away in prison unjustly for 24 years. We have no idea what that's like. We shouldn't even pretend that we have any idea. But, okay, we need to acknowledge that, but... I think we know, I think most of us have, the, have had the experience of being accused of things that are not true. And I, I can almost guarantee that all of us have had the experience of being misunderstood. 
to be in a situation where you have tried to explain something and there's nothing more to say. It's not that we, we shouldn't seek to make ourselves understood. It's not that we should just not say anything in the face of injustice. But here's the reality. I think this is a reality even in our lives. There are situations in your life in which you cannot convince someone you are innocent of something they are accusing you of. Or you cannot convince, you cannot get them to understand you. And that's painful. It's painful to be misunderstood. It's really painful to be accused of things that are either not true or not fair. What do you do? What do you do when there's nothing more to say? What do you do when you reach the point where there is nothing more to say? At some point, you've got you to leave your reputation into God's hand. See, if you, if you live primarily to, to please other people, when you find yourself in these situations, so, so if your identity and your self-worth uh, revolves around what other people think about you, it is going to be essential for you to be understood. It is going to be essential for you that no matter what, those accusations go away. But, and if they don't, you're, it's going to really depress you. It's gonna, it could crush you. If these accusations come at you or you're misunderstood and you base your identity on what other people think, you are not going to be able to get over that. But if you live your life to please God, it's not that being misunderstood is going to be fun. It's not that false accusations are not going to be painful. But you can, you're going to be able to face those differently. You're going to be able to face those with, with, amount, with a certain amount of grace and faith and courage that you would not otherwise. Because you have a model in front of you when there's nothing more to say. It, it doesn't just give you a model of how to deal with kind of what's happening inside you. It helps you to then, then you get a model from Jesus. How do you deal with that person? How do you deal with that person that's lobbing those false accusations at you? We don't get this in Mark, we get it in Luke. Jesus, some of his last words on the cross are, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Okay? All these, all these false accusations, all this miscarriage of just, injustice, and some of Jesus' final words are, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, that's hard. It's hard enough to be misunderstood or to have things falsely, uh, false accusations given, but then to forgive them Man, that's hard. But when you do that, you're doing a couple things. One, you are releasing, uh, you're releasing it to God. Okay? You're, you're saying, well, one, you've already got to, said my reputation, the, the most important person for me, our reputation is God. So you've done that, but now you're going to release the judgment into God's hand. See, it's our tendency when this happens is that, is that we want to take justice in our own hands. We, we want the person to pay for it. We may not want to, them to pay for it by physically attacking, but man, we want them to pay for it. We want to repay evil for evil. We want to take vengeance with our own hands, or at least our own words, or at least in our own minds. At the very least, we want to be proven right. And Jesus gives us a model of releasing that, when there's nothing else to say, of releasing that to the Father. See, if we hold on to that injustice, it will eat us alive. It will destroy us. It's, uh, I've heard, heard a preacher say this. It's like, it's like holding on to the one ring in the Lord of the Rings. If you hold on to that ring, 
it, it, it will eventually destroy you. If you hold on to the anger and the bitterness that come from false accusations and not being misunderstood, it will destroy you from inside out, just like the one ring. You can't handle it. And just like the one ring, the only thing you can do with the one ring is to cast it into the fires of Mount Doom. In our case, the only thing you can do with the false accusations and being misunderstood is to cast it to God. He's the only one that has the power to both handle that and to accurately judge the situation. Let me say it again. He's the only one that could actually judge the situation. Because here's the other thing that's kind of humbling about these situations when we think wrong has been done to us. We might be convinced we're right, that we're innocent, but our judgment is clouded with sin. We do not have the ability to hold a fair court in our head. Our jurisprudence is corrupt. We are like the chief priests. We are so prone to envy and self-interest. We are like Pilate. We are so prone to moral indifference in the face of evil. We are like the crowds. We have misplaced our hopes time and time again. We have chosen to put our trust and faith in the way of violence rather than the way of the suffering servant and of the cross. We're, in other words, guilty. Like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But him, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. So saith the prophet Isaiah. You see the irony in this story? Everyone in this kangaroo court that's happening in Jerusalem, everyone's guilty of something. Everyone. The chief priests are guilty. Pilate's guilty. Barabbas is guilty. The crowds are guilty. Those who flogged Jesus are guilty. Everyone's guilty except for the one person on trial. And the irony doesn't stop there. Jesus will, 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 be, hand, he will be hung on a cross in between two insurrectionists, as if he were one of them. But the reason why Jesus is in the middle is because he would not be like one of them, because he refused to take the sword up against Rome, like those two men did and that Barabbas did. He refused to take up military force, and because of that, he ends up on the cross. He ends up where the insurrectionist is supposed to be. The one who preached the way of peace ends up on a cross that was intended for murderers. I don't, know if, I don't know if Barabbas was there. It doesn't seem clear from the text if Barabbas is somewhere else in prison or he's there. But I, in my mind, I imagine Barabbas there. And I imagine a moment when Barabbas and Jesus cross. When Barabbas the rebel, who's now walking to his freedom, passes Jesus the innocent who's walking to the cross. And I wonder if their eyes lock. See what's happening here? I mean, this is what Mark wants us to see. You see, the innocent is walking where the guilty should walk, and the guilty is walking where the innocent should walk. Jesus Barabbas, the son of Abba, is walking free, while Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, is walking to take his place on the cross. One man is taking the place of another. And if that is the end of the story, this is one more story in a long, long line of injustice. 
Jesus is one more victim in a line of victims of injustice that stretch to today, to the George Bells, to the Rohan Bolts, to the Gary Johnsons all over this country and this world. But Jesus isn't just a victim of, of injustice. He is that. His death is a means of redemption. It's a means of saving. One takes the place of the many. It's early in the morning. It's dawn in Jerusalem. Man, darkness is coming. The darkness is going to come over what's going to cover the land. In these next few weeks, we are going to enter into that darkness. We are going to enter into the pain of Good Friday as we enter in these last few weeks of Lent. But we do so because we know that injustice doesn't get the last word. Because in three weeks from today, we will wake up on Easter. I hope it'll be sunny like it is today. And we will know once again, after having reenacted the story again, that we made it. Freedom is ours. Thanks be to God.